Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today we're going to talk about Sunday's Golden Globe ceremony, uh, and then we, we're going to talk Alan V. Farrow, and Ben's going to talk about one of his favorite shows. Surprise, surprise, we'll figure out what it is. This is a millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. Guys, this past Sunday, the second episode of HBO's Alan V. Farrow dropped, and I've only watched the first two. I don't have screener access. I believe both of you have watched all four, but uh, this was the big one in terms of the the tape, and it feels like the internet was somewhat surprised about uh, Woody Allen's filmography, and it's sort of telling that like the way that culture shapes who this person is. Obviously, Woody Allen, the person who married his stepdaughter, stepdaughter was already in the consciousness when I was old enough to take in Woody Allen movies. So that was already framing who I, who I thought he was. But I do remember watching Manhattan and sort of being aghast that this was the, this was the storyline. And yet he's still beloved amongst various circles of, uh, cinephiles um there are all these sort of arguments to make sure that he is not quote unquote canceled uh uh uh-huh leo this is your favorite topic to talk about look i love quote unquote cancel culture i'm a cancel culture warrior what did you guys think of this week's episode obviously you guys have seen the whole series i think episode two is pretty was pretty essential in terms of coming to understand exactly where Woody Allen was in the culture before before everything, before the fallout initially occurred, before these allegations were uh, were out there and before kind of the, the court of public opinion took place. And that's something that really the filmmakers get into in episode three, the kind of court of public opinion part of it all. Um, but you do get to see a lot more of just the just the way that that Woody Allen nurtured his audience to have them on his side, no matter what, like how he, as both the director, writer and star of these movies kind of could instill this, this level of, of allegiance uh, and, and intimacy between himself and the audience so that they would trust, you know, kind of whatever was put out there in, in, you know, from his perspective. And, um, I think that the that one of the things the documentary does really well is that it it doesn't really doesn't really make any bones about about whose side it's on or whose voice it wants to elevate. It, everything about Woody Allen, who, who refused to take part of the documentary, um, everything from his perspective is is fairly put out there from a from a you know from a, just a factual standpoint. But the people doing the talking and the people telling their stories are. Dylan Farrow and Mia Farrow and the Farrow family and the rest of the, you know, the, the, the Farrows and, and their friends uh, who didn't really have an opportunity to speak before. And um, the way that the, that the, that this episode in particular kind of sets up what happened as well as the, the very peculiar relationship between Dylan and Woody Allen before episode three launches into this is how people saw Woody Allen it just sets such a strong contrast between the reality and the fiction, the, the, what actually happened in this family versus the, 
idea of Woody Allen that he shaped himself for everybody to hear and see and, and, you know, become a part of. And I, I, you know, I, I go on these rants a few times a week probably, but I do love episodic television because it lets us sit with these kind of things before just moving straight on. Like I, I had to watch these episodes in the span of like a day in order to meet the, the review embargo. Uh, and it made for quite an interesting Valentine's Day experience. Uh, but it's so much better to sit with this, to, to look at these individually because they are structured very well uh, to, to tell a, a side of the story, to tell uh, new information and to provide proper framing for the events that they're trying to you know explain. Um, and uh, yeah, so I thought, I think two is good. I think three, three is where it gets, you know, a little dicey at times, but for the most part, they really, they really hone this thing down. I really admire what um, the documentarians are doing with this. They aren't obviously able to have access to Woody Allen, but uh, luckily Woody Allen released a a memoir last year uh, that he then narrated the book on tape. So we get Woody Allen's side of a lot of this, and it, and it is directly included, directly lifted from from his own writing about uh, these experiences. So it's not as though there is not an actual rebuttal, and it, I realize that that's not the same, but it, it's not that different from how he would have rebut all of this anyway. I mean, it's the version he saw fit to print. Yeah, like, exactly. Which, which is while watching is it's in like I'm incredulous most of the time, going, this is all perfectly normal to this person yeah and it's not normal it's not normal and and the thought that woody allen has was low-key grooming an entire culture um with his films before what he chose to do with his life is upsetting and it's upsetting but it's not surprising i mean he came from i mean we have to remember Polanski. We had Polanski before we had Woody Allen. There, it has always been acceptable for older men to go after very young women, even if they aren't uh, at the le- at the age of consent. Um, culturally, uh, societally, we have uh, we've always been softer on that than than is than is right. Let's say. Um, I mean, I think Gigi is about this exact thing. <laughs> like, I mean, let's go back to Vladimir Nabokov and. Uh, I mean, exactly. <laughs> like this. This is. I mean, this is not new. The Lolita fantasy is is, it's that it's literally a trope. The problem with, the, early '90s is that they came right after the '80s uh, and the Satanic Panic. I was definitely thinking about Satanic Panic while watching episode two, because I I have uh, some friends of friends who like went to prison like the the fell acres uh fell acres childhood daycare center in in massachusetts like i know someone who went to prison for 18 years for something he didn't do because of satanic panic and like it was these detectives sort of like forcing you know uh these kids to, to say things and like putting words in their mouth for them to repeat watching dylan in that video she didn't sound like a parrot. She didn't seem like a parrot. She seemed like a little girl who was uncomfortable 
talking about something uncomfortable that happened um, that she would really rather not be talking about because she's embarrassed or uncomfortable. I mean, they have tapes of satanic panic interviews and the way that those typically operate is the adult says something and the child usually does not repeat it, but instead either agrees and the adult says it again and says, can you say that's what happened or something along those lines? And the child sort of like mimics what the adult has just said. That is not at all what's happening in these videos. No, they do. They do an excellent job of breaking that down in the third episode, which is where uh, earlier when I when. probably is the word wrong term when I, when I said oh, it was, no. when things get dicey in the third episode it's it's that things get extremely complicated in terms of um understanding exactly you know what happened in those moments how it was reflected in society and what the impressions like what impressions we were left with you know until uh, you know dylan spoke up again and until you know the me too movement and until you know like things really started to crystallize uh but those like the 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 detail and the emphasis that they put into like breaking down the Yale study. That was one of the things that, that Woody used to try to clear his name uh, and what went wrong with that. That's just such a huge undertaking unto itself. Uh, but as well as examining those tapes and trying to understand, you know, okay, like here's an expert. They're going to explain what you just saw. Here's an expert responding to, you know, what other people said was in there and why that's not necessarily true. And then here's more examples of that same thing so that it's not just based on one instance or two instances. You're seeing the whole thing. Like they, again, the directors really let you kind of uh, examine things for yourself and hear not both sides of it, but just hear, you know, the rational understanding. To to wrap this up, my, ge- my general thought on all of Alan B. Farrell, and I'm paraphrasing one of my favorite uh, tweets that I've seen, is essentially like, it says, Woody Allen, uh, I married married my girlfriend's daughter, and uh, check out my film Manhattan where I play a pedophile. And then society goes, this man is an enigma. Who can figure out what's going on in his brain? (laughs) Who can make heads or tails of it? It's like, um... Ben, 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 are there any shows you want to talk about? <laughs> I, I, mean, I should, I should. I can't believe we just teed him up for this. I should note, I should note, I should note that in <laughs> in our Slack, in our podcast Slack, Ben said he could talk about some new shows coming out that that he's heard or, or he's seen and he enjoyed some of. And then he's said, heard are and, good. And I said, Ben, Ben, you can talk about any show you like. And uh, instead of talking about It's a Sin Mistake. or The Great North. He wants to talk about The Leftovers? It's a really good show, and I just wish more people would watch it. And I get so angry because everybody is trying to tell people what's right or wrong during a pandemic because they're like, no, you can't watch The Leftovers during a pandemic. And then other people are like, yes, you can watch The Leftovers during a pandemic. And it's like, you know what, guys? Fucking, you're adults. Make decisions for yourself. Who is having these conversations? These are fictional well, people. I follow. Yeah, they No, just... I follow all the right people on, on Twitter. It's oh great. my god. Like people uh, always loop me into these conversations and I'm like, oh I can help. Ben, thirty seconds on It's a Sin. Well, I've seen one episode and it's a pretty good start. Uh, I uh, I am not necessarily oh god. Uh, oh here we go. Who wrote that? Who wrote that show? Uh, I'm gonna use up my time. Uh he did. He did the Hugh Grant show where Hugh Grant it's, had sex with Paddington Bear. It's, is, who, it, it's, is it Russell T. Davies? That's it. He okay. he wrote the show, Russell T. Davies. 
Um, I'm not uh, up to date on his entire oeuvre, if you will. Did uh, he do another year as well? He did. No, not another year. He did year. He did. Years and years. Years, years and, years. and years. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, which is absolutely terrible. Uh, but this, this is pretty good. Um, it's off to a great start. It's uh, a period piece looking at the AIDS epidemic um, in London primarily uh, and how kind of at least the first episode and, the, and kind of the start of the second, and it's only a four-part series, set up the story of these these four young men who you know kind of meet and get together and are you know already struggling with their identity and already struggling with com- coming out uh, to their friends and family uh, just as they start to embrace it this thing hits and it, I mean, in the, in the cruelest possible terms, it really just is a buzzkill to everything that they wanted to do with their lives. And it really feels like the show is setting itself up to be that same kind of idea so that we, you know, remember and respect and, and kind of come to terms with what happened. But again, having not seen the end of it, I don't know exactly how it wraps up or all of the points it wants to make, but I will say that the casting is great. The, the setup is, is very well done. It's extremely efficiently made. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm way over time, way over time, Ben, 30 seconds, Damn it. 30 seconds on the great North, uh, Lauren Bouchard's new show. Okay. We'll tie this one back to Paddington too, because, uh, the great North is part of the ongoing nice core movement, which, uh, is a term TM by David Ehrlich of IndieWire fame. When Paddington two first came out amid, uh, all of this Trump nonsense and all of the hate and fear, it was just a source of light and good, and The Great North, an animated comedy on Fox, uh, starring Nick Offerman, Jenny Slate, Will Forte, and more. Basically, it's this Alaskan family just trying to get along uh, and love each other and live their lives. And there's not a lot of, like, there's no real internal conflict. It's all about building each other up. And it's very much in the vein of Bob's Burgers in that way. And it's great. And it's nice. And you should watch it. I think The Great North is nice. I think that it is a show that after a season and a half, I will go back binge a bunch of it and just be like, oh yeah, this is really good. It really figured out what it wanted to be. Um, which is different from Bob's Burgers for me because I was on board with that like right away. So Even, even Bob's Burgers took a little bit though to figure out exactly the tone and what its characters are going to be. Like Bob was a lot grumpier at the start of that show and there was less emphasis on the children's lives. And I think that, yeah, you're right. The Great North is definitely going to figure itself out during this first season but it already feels like the kind of thing that I can revisit. And I'm tempted to go right. back to revisit even after six episodes. I, uh, I think great North actually has the opposite problem. Um, when Bob's burger started, Bob was the straight man and he was surrounded by his wacky family. Uh, but as the focus shifted to the kids, um, that actually freed Bob up to, to be revealed as just as weird as his family. Um, my favorite runner, of course, being anytime he talks to the food, um so so that once that once that uh balance was struck uh everything started rolling around much smoother with the great north i think they're starting with like everyone in this family is pretty wacky and i am kind of lost it's like it's like um the reason that the first six episodes of a of a hangout comedy uh with just a bunch of friends hanging out uh usually try and burn through some narrative so it creates stakes and you it creates investment and then it can just kind of go to just everyone's hanging out and you enjoy being a part of that um it's hard to jump into a hangout comedy feeling like everyone's been hanging out without you for like six years you feel a little 
left out. And that's where I'm at with the Great North right now. But it, it's so much talent and I love that voice cast and I love the Molyneux and um, I only want good things for the show, so. This past Sunday was uh, the award show that Gary Oldman famously called uh, Nighty Nobody's <laughs> Having a Wank. We'll never not let that go. Uh, it was the Golden Globes, and if you were thinking that the HFPA would let everyone down with a uh, garbage fire of a show, boy, were you in for a surprise. No, they did, they did exactly what you thought they would do. Um, from a technical standpoint, as someone who has been using Zoom over the course of the past year, I can tell the HFPA uh, just paid for a Zoom Pro subscription for nearly all of their endeavors. Um, you could see the name in the bottom bottom right corner as uh, people were giving their acceptance speeches. Uh, it's what the backstage uh, interview setup was as well. We all knew it was going to be pretty rough. Ben, you gave it a D plus in your review and I, that almost felt kind. I don't know. Like I, it, it was, it was worse than I thought it could be after what the Emmys had put off, put on both as a show. And from my standpoint, a backstage uh, press room uh, with a custom portal uh they the first from the from the jump the first award of the night uh daniel kaluuya could his mic was not on and so he started his acceptance speech and they were going to essentially just go to commercial without him accepting his award what were some of your takeaways ben obviously people can go read your, your review of the show but you know we were all pretty much bemoaning all of these technical snafus and how sort of lazy a lot of it was i mean that's that's first and foremost the ultimate problem with the Globes was, well, actually, honestly, I don't know if it is first and foremost, but it is the, the thing that everyone would notice right off the bat if you uh, only tuned in to the Golden Globes and read nothing about the Gold Globes and what's going on with the HFPA otherwise, you would have still watched the show and been like, man, there are a lot of just weird fuck-ups here. Um, I still think that the worst thing that they, the worst things that they did from a production standpoint weren't necessarily the mistakes that were made. Like, obviously, uh, the Daniel Kaluuya thing at the top of the broadcast is pretty embarrassing, but they did get back to him. I was really worried that they would not get back to him at all, and holy shit, would have that, that would have been terrible. But I think that the worst thing that they did were actual choices that they made. I think the, the choice to put people on uh, a Zoom room conversation leading into every commercial break where they had the next five nominees who are going to you know compete to see who, who wins, uh, just kind of sitting on screen looking at themselves, I guess, virtually in Zoom while we looked at them, look at each other, and they were just supposed to talk. Like It's almost like you could see a flashing light, like the applause light in a studio that just said, talk, 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 while they were looking at each other because they had nothing to say. And half of them were really committed to trying to say something to each other because they knew they were on live television across the country. And the other half were like, there's no fucking way I'm talking right now because this is so awkward and there's nothing I could say that would be good. And I don't have any lines. I'm an actor. I'm not a writer. I'm not creating things. My favorite one um, so of those. Just, my favorite one of those was the was a drama act, actor, uh, drama series actor, because it was it was Odin Kirk holding court as a late night talk show host, going like, absolutely. Josh, what are you wearing? Where are you? What's, what's like? And he was going like, uh, nominee to nominee, making sure that everyone was able to talk. And I was like, if you have someone who's like a a, a sketch improvised, like an improviser, sketch comedian, they can maybe do that. But not every category has someone to sort of like host the conversation before commercial. Even if it meant he had to wake up Al Pacino. 
exactly. Yeah, I do not remember which uh, group it was, but at the last thing said before cutting to commercial, after a mostly silent stare down between these people, was someone yelling, "Just act natural!" Like really loudly. They were just like, "Just act natural!" And it was like, "Yeah, that's the that's the best you could do with that kind of thing. Like it's the best help an, an assistant or a, or a director could have given." Was that them. not Sudeikis and, and such, I thought that was uh, no, no, because they talked a lot. I guess it could. I'll have to go back. I just remember the closeout part of it and being affronted. <laughs> but um, the other, the other problem with this is perhaps the HFPA producers of this telecast were trying to lean into the idea that this was a remote, virtual broadcast, and people wanted to see the celebrities in their homes, even though most of them are not in their homes because they don't want anyone to see their homes from, uh, from live natural television. So they're renting places or in a hotel or, you know, uh, Jason Sudeikis is in London working on Ted Lasso. If that was the, the goal, they did that immensely poorly too, because the framing of those shots of all the people sitting together where in a best case scenario, we could as an audience just kind of look and be like, Ooh, that's what Al Pacino's house looks like. And this is what he's doing where he's just sitting around. And it's like an even more natural state than the audience shots at a typical award show that was ruined because the camera was so far away from those panels from the, from the people that you could barely tell who they were. You had to strain just to be like, okay, that's this person. And that's this person. And I guess Kaylee Cuoco is sitting there. I don't know. Like your whole, the whole concept was bad. And the fact that they kept going back to it to me really showed how badly prepared they were because they didn't even have room to adjust. They didn't even say like, okay, we're going to cut this and go to the backup sketch that we were originally not going to do, or we're going to air the pre-taped bit, or we're going to do this other thing, or we've got another idea because this clearly isn't working and people clearly don't like it. They had nothing. They just kept doing the bad things over and over and over again. And to me, that's inexcusable. It feels like in the planning stage that what they did was they looked at an average Golden Globe ceremony and then they just tried to substitute everything that they usually do with a Zoom call. So anytime they would want to like cut to the room to see Brad Pitt, a drunken Brad Pitt reacting to something, then that is when they would like go to someone random's webcam reaction. Um, it was just a, a simple like uh, find and replace. And that actually doesn't work because <laughs> Zoom is not uh, the, the Beverly Hilton ballroom. Um, but I think, uh, it, it was just, it was embarrassing. And, and I don't like to say that because I'm sure someone, probably just one person put a lot of time into trying to put the Golden Globe ceremony together, but it really had the feel of the first time I had to try and get all of my family members in a single Zoom call in like early April. You're talking people through it. I'm trying to explain to my parents why it's sideways or why they can't see everyone, uh, how they need to use headphones or otherwise they're going to get echo. Um, if people are doing terrible bits like Catherine O'Hara's husband like like it, it's just um but ben i think you're exactly right they just didn't give themselves any room to they didn't give themselves any room to adjust they didn't actually try to adapt the show for what they needed to do they were just kind of trying to retrofit what they'd always done into new technology and and honestly it's just an unreasonable ask to ask someone to stay on a Zoom call 
dressed into the nines for three hours. Like I, I wouldn't have done it. And I, I certainly wouldn't have done it for the golden globes. Um, it, 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 what a cluster. Um, yeah, as as someone who's had the uh, distinct pleasure of making broadcast television for uh, literally hundreds of dollars, which is not uh, a fun enterprise, um, I do. I definitely can empathize with you, with whoever was in charge of the proceedings, because I have to assume that they probably know there's a better way to do do that. I'm I'm more angry at the fact that the HFPA was paid twenty seven million dollars by NBC to, to, to get the golden, what they access to Golden Globes, and that's what the resulting product was. Uh, there's no producer who's going to say, like, yep, this is the show. He's probably like, hey, can I have $5 million so I can send camera crews to some of the more high-profile people's hotel rooms or uh, houses so that we have solid feeds, um, as opposed to these very... Uh, I mean, even the Jane Fonda behind the, the scenes thing that you sent, Ben, of her uh, her setup is like semi-professional. It's definitely not what was in Damon Lindelof's house, you know, uh, during the Emmys. And I think what's so telling is that the, the Golden Globes had all this time to prepare. The Emmys had already showcased how to put on a show during a pandemic. And the Golden Globes sort of like pushed that aside and said, mm, we don't. We don't need to learn from what you did early in pandemic. We can just try to, as Libby said, retrofit what the normal show is digitally. Well, it feels like they didn't even watch the Emmys. <laughs> it feels like they didn't learn anything. And listen, I I am sitting down here and I'm eating a bunch of crow because I wasn't that in love with the Emmy ceremony. But by um, comparison... Exactly. And I thought it was ridiculous they were sending these camera crews all out. Um, I think I probably even advocated at some point for something like the Golden Globe. Like, I, I don't no, know. No, you and I advocated I for way more. You and I advocated for way more pre-produced segments. And neither show, neither show has leaned in that direction, which is crazy to me to not, like, try something new. Well, I mean, especially for these shows where... <laughs> A lot of times people are catching them on the West Coast rerun and everything's not live. But um, yeah, I I could not have like I I, I want to write this. This has inspired me to write like a belated a, a belated appreciation for the Emmys um, because I had no concept of how poorly this was going to be executed by by other organizations. Um, I assumed wrongly that with more time um people would be able to 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 streamline this this kind of event especially as they're able to have more people interacting because uh because restrictions are being lowered but no like this if you if you showed me clips from the golden globes and clips from the emmys and you asked me which one took place earliest in the pandemic as far as like how long people had been in lockdown uh yeah i would have picked the golden yeah. globes they, they, they'd seem inverse a thousand yeah. times over the golden globes ratings were abysmal uh when compared to last year's uh in-person event last year's nut viewership was 18.3 million uh this past sunday's was 6.9 barely a third when you compare that to what the Emmys did in their pandemic uh, ceremony, they went from 6.9 to 6.1. So 
So yes, they had a, a smaller starting number, but they didn't lose that many viewers overall. To, to go to, go to uh, a third of what you had the previous year, hopefully some of this stuff is taking hold. Hopefully there's enough in the zeitgeist that like, the Golden Globes don't matter. Let's stop paying attention to them. Great, Jason Sudeikis won. He was going to be the front runner for the Emmys anyway. Like, we know that. Like, we don't, we don't need the Golden Globes to award him to know that he's in the pole position going into the Emmys. Yeah, we don't, we don't need to pretend that those, those 87 voters oh, thank God. are going to sway the they, TV Academy. They awarded the Queen's Gambit and Anya Taylor-Joy. I did not see that coming. Honestly, for, for me, uh, looking at the TV Awards landscape, the Golden Globes are more of a ruiner to me than anything like they can boost things that don't deserve to be boosted like i don't necessarily always agree with their winners like i was very concerned that i'm sorry hbo that 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 the undoing would have won because there has been a large and strange groundswell of support for that show that i don't think was as good as Queen's Gambit. I also don't think it was as good as as uh, Unorthodox or, or or most of the limited series nominees. And I certainly don't think it was as good as uh, a Small Axe, um, the, the collection of short films from um, Amazon Prime. <laughs> Shut up. Well, feature I, I can't films. Help it. Full feature, not short yeah. films. I'm yeah. sorry. A collection <laughs> of feature films from Amazon Prime Video. And... Uh, television maker steve mcqueen um but libby is this a good point to pivot to what i think we want to talk about which is and and ben you were mentioning that you know the emmys could have taken a big swing and changed what their what their award show looked like if anything the golden globes this like wild and crazy shit show which is supposed to be you know celebrities getting drunk with one another in a ballroom they could have done so many weird things they could have had camera crews go to like two celebrities houses and have them like get drunk together, cut that into a nice three to five minute bit and be like, hey, here's something that is similar to the show, but different. It's more of a comedy sketch as it, than it is uh, the award show. None of that uh, in the show. And I think, unfortunately, the Oscars is is the most staid of these things. That's not I'm not looking to the Oscars to make any big swings and do make any crazy changes to their show. You want to know? what the Oscars will do though, because the Oscars do it every year and everyone complains about it. And it's always low key my favorite part, montages. Uh, which is honestly, I, I think something that more of these award shows should have should have leaned on, especially at like the Golden Globes or especially with films this year, because despite what my wife is tweeting lately, like, uh, there are there is greater access to the films that are getting nominated, but also that is just happening. So having a, a thing that refamiliarizes me with with all of the films that have come out in the last fourteen months, I, I think is worthwhile. Um, I think this has just been such a disjointed uh, period of time that I think montages help ground us in something that we understand. Um, it's something you can do with pre-production and. Uh, roll out with relative ease. Um, I just remembered how the Creative Arts Emmys ran the same obituary <laughs> segment five nights in a row. And the, um, the Creative Arts Emmys were a different story. Let's be clear; those uh, broadcasts, which uh, were not really meant to be brought, like they're not built to be a, 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 a 
dozens of people watch those broadcasts. Right. There are four of the winners, uh, four of the nominees and the winners. Uh, or, yeah, that was that was rough. But, yeah, it was a rough uh, week. Uh, now I'm remembering why I was uh, down about the Emmys heading into it. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a mistake to not have more pre-produced content. I think there are a lot of things that award shows should have learned from the Emmys. I still think there are a lot of things that they should be considering uh, before putting on their award shows. And uh, I don't think anyone is looking to anyone else to have learned to, to build on, on the knowledge that is out there already. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation, IndieWire, a theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video of Bjork talking about TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Anna Harris Brightson, our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Anne Donahue. Our favorite animated comedies of all time include Gravity Falls, Batman the Animated Series, and Daria. IndieWire's Millions of Screens endorses the Beavis and Butthead revival. You can find us on Twitter at Million Screens at Midwest Spitfire, Ben T. Travers, and Leo Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. Remind you, as always, you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>